we really think about this world as physical commodity traders first and and how they might be reacting to these markets um, and then look to just systematically trade around it. And that's held us in really good stead uh, over the years as we think about, uh, you know, taking this program further. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Welcome to another episode in the Open Interest series on Top Traders Unplugged, hosted by Moritz Siebert. In life, as well as in trading, maintaining a spirit of curiosity and open-mindedness is key, and this is precisely what the Open Interest series is all about. Join Moritz as he engages in candid conversations with seasoned professionals from around the globe to uncover their insights, successes and failures, offering you a unique perspective on the investment landscape. So with no further ado, please enjoy the conversation. Hello, this is Marit Siebert, and I'd like to welcome you to another episode of Open Interest on Top Traders Unplugged. Today, I'll be speaking with Anand Chatya, who is the founder and CEO of Greenland Investment Management, a hedge fund focused on commodity arbitrage strategies. I met Anand about five years ago at a conference in Miami, and we've stayed in touch ever since. About two years or so ago, I asked him for the first time if he'd like to speak about his trading on a podcast or webcast, an offer he politely declined at the time as he didn't want to speak about his trading strategies on the air. But then, three weeks or so ago, I ran into Anand again in London at a conference and asked him again. And this time around, luckily, he agreed to come on, which is great because, as I've said, Anand has never been on a podcast before, so this is a true first. The main subject of our conversation today will be systematic commodity arbitrage and spread trading. We'll speak about location arbitrage trades, substitution spreads, as well as the importance of Greenland's high-frequency trading tech setup for the efficient implementation of their strategies. So, without any further delay, Anand, welcome to Open Interest. It's a pleasure to be on, Moritz. Well, it's been a long time in the making. It's great to have you on. I'm really looking forward to that. Um, you've been very quiet about the things that you do. And, you know, so this is going to be interesting, I think. I'm sure, actually. And But hey, before we start, Anand, I know you're based in Mumbai these days, but could you please give us some additional background on yourself? Greenland Commodities, the firm that you run. I remember when we met in London a couple of weeks ago, you mentioned that your family runs or used to run a commodity merchants business focused on steel scrap and that kind of like physical commodity trading conversations used to be pretty much normal around the dinner table at your house uh, when you were growing up. So please, if you could tell us a little bit, you know, how you grew up, your connection to the commodities world and all that. Uh, sure, sure. Uh, happy to. No, so. As you said, you know, when uh, I, I grew up uh, in in a family that was a family of commodity merchants, uh, my grandfather actually back in the 80s uh, had started a commodity merchant business, uh, trading a host of commodities across the world. Uh, my dad and my uncle took that over. Uh, and, you know, now in the third generation, 40 years later, my brother is running uh, that part of the business. Uh, so for me, growing up, um, being around physical commodity trading or conversations around physical commodity trading uh, was just second nature. Uh, you know, terms like uh, CFRs, bill of ladings, letter of credits uh, is, is things that I, I knew of as, as a teenager uh, because uh, we used to hear about all the real world challenges that uh, physical traders uh, actually face. Um, you know, as these conversations in the family business were ongoing. Uh, so I find myself quite fortunate that 
all these years later, uh, I'm still involved in commodities trading, uh, not necessarily from a physical aspect, uh, but we can learn a lot from what goes on in in, the, in those physical businesses and implement that in in our strategies. Uh, so, you know, a little bit about myself. Um, I, I graduated degrees in finance and computer engineering uh, from the University of Pennsylvania. Um, I started out at uh, AQR, uh, actually not on the commodity side, but on uh, the global stock selection side uh, as a researcher and PM uh, over there uh, in, in the early 2000s. And then um, found myself back in India, uh, you know, co-founded a hedge fund uh, onshore with two other colleagues. Uh, it was actually the first hedge fund onshore in India. And then finally, a few years later, I found my calling uh, in trading global commodity arbitrage strategies and found that uh, the insights that we could involve from our physical business in implementing our strategies uh, was just tremendous. And uh, the mix of you know taking a systematic structured approach uh, to investing in commodity location spreads, uh, plus the inf in information and insights from our physical business uh, was a really powerful mix um, and a different take uh, on trading these commodity markets. Thanks for that, Anand. Actually, I'd like to go back to the AQR days now that you mentioned it. You said you joined them in the early 2000s. I think AQR wasn't, a like, I think they got founded in the late 90s or mid-90s, something like that. So you were at AQR at a relatively early stage. I mean, how did you find it there? As much as we all love Clifford Ness, actually, I like him a lot. I think he's funny. He's absolutely great listening to um, you're working on equities. Was that something you found out, ah, that's just not for me? You're really, you'd like to go back to commodities and equities is not your thing? Tell us a little bit about how, what, how it was at AQR back then. Uh, sure, sure. So the week I joined AQR was... Uh, actually the week of the quant crisis uh, back in August of 2007. Uh, so definitely a really interesting time uh, to see how a firm reacts with a tail event uh, taking place. Uh, and I was thrown right into it. Um, I, I think I am really fond of my time that I spent there at AQR. Um, I think it was some of the smartest people that I was fortunate to have an opportunity to work with. Um, and I think, you know, my takeaway from there um, in terms of how it shapes my investing today is really about how AQR used to think about risk management, really careful sort of portfolio construction. Um, and, and we actually use a lot of those sort of insights uh, and, and ways of thinking in how we even manage the book today. Um, so whether you're doing that uh, within equities or applying similar concepts to other asset classes, um, I, I think the takeaways still remain the same. Um, so I was really fortunate to have been there. Um, you know, at that time, AQR was a much smaller shop. I mean, it's still at around, I believe, 20 billion or so uh, while I was there. Uh, it's obviously significantly larger now, um, but um, I, I think a lot of my thinking about systematic investing is is really sort of driven by my time and experience uh, at AQR. Cool. Um, also, one of the things that I'd like to touch on, and you know, this is maybe a distant memory for me, but when we first met in in Miami, I think a couple of years ago, you mentioned that you had your start actually in the kind of like high frequency trading, FX market making business, a kind of different to commodity arbitrage trading, what it is that you do today. So I think your firm, maybe you can speak a little bit about that. Like how has it evolved? How did you start the business? Which focus did the business have initially and how did it evolve over time? Sure. So um, actually when I started Greenland, um, we originally started out in 2013 um, as a prop trading firm. Uh, we were just trading my family capital at that point. Um, and and we were doing two things, you know, which uh, seems a bit distinct from each other, but uh, still highly uh, related. Uh, you know, the first was really doing high frequency market making in the FX. So, you know, we used to trade um, FX forwards uh, versus FX futures, make markets in the interbank markets, and and then hedge ourselves uh, in in the futures side. Um, we still do that today, um, and 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 that was actually 
um, what led us to go out and build high-frequency trading systems, you know, low-latency systems, co-located servers across the globe, uh, was actually primarily driven uh, by that business. But even back in 2013, um, even at that point, we were also running uh, these commodity arbitrage strategies uh, at the same time. Um, and then along the way, you know, you realize there's actually a lot of synergies that you can get having those HFT systems in place uh, as how it applies to our commodity portfolio uh, as well. How difficult is it to me as a, really, I have no connection to the HFT space whatsoever. I mean, how difficult is it to set something like that up? I mean, were you capable of doing that with your degree in computer science? Um, do you need to fly around the world in order to connect with these exchanges and co-locate with them? And tell us a little bit about how that that part of the business works, which really is um, still a little bit of a black box to me, to be quite honest. Uh, so it's 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 not an easy business, <laughs> to, to say the least. Uh, it, it does take a lot of effort uh, to get the right systems in place. Um, you know, you, you got to... Get your, as you mentioned, you know the physical servers in each of the locations uh, that that you want to be co-located at. Um, you got to work with telecom providers to find, you know, the fastest lines that can connect your different servers. Um, you have a whole tech stack that you're building out uh, internally in terms of connecting into the exchanges, processing orders, or processing market data. Uh, and then on top of that, you still got to build your alphas and your actual trading signals uh, that that should hopefully go out in the markets and and make money. Uh, so it's a pretty large undertaking uh, that you have to do. You can start out by um, working with some providers that can you know providing provide you some hosting to get started with. Um, you can work with some low latency um, algo system providers as well. Uh, but then over time, if you really want to be competitive in the space, you pretty much have to in-house uh, all of that, and and you can't really rely on third parties. Um, I'd say in, in that space, in any case, I mean, we were not working with the objective of trying to be the fastest uh, HFT player uh, in the world. Uh, you know, we ran those strategies in a in a manner uh, that allowed us to take uh, meaningful amounts of overnight exposure, so we didn't have to go on flat at the end of the day. Um, it allowed our signals to be differentiated enough uh, from the other HFT market participants, uh, so we didn't have to purely compete on speed. Um, but if you did not have at least a base case uh, co-located systems and, and still operate in, in you know, microseconds, um, it would not be a game that we would be able to play. So, so those systems are just table stakes if you want to play those games. Uh, but there again, you know, how, how much you want to push that speed boundary um, is, is something that you can decide in relation to the types of alphas uh, that you're looking to capture. Right. So this is, this is a part of the business that you set up in 2013 and you, know, you were still a prop shop back then, I think you mentioned but you have decided to maintain it to the present day. And later on in the conversation, I think we'll speak about why that is important for the things that you actually trade at the moment, right? Right, uh, absolutely. Um, you know, that's, uh, that is something that we set up well, way back then. Uh, we still run that uh, program today. It is a, it is a highly capacity-constrained program, or as, as you would imagine, for anything that's high-frequency traded. Um, but we still continue to run it. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's worked well for us. And um, we continue to invest uh, in those systems as well. And uh, because not only it benefits that particular program, but it invests, uh, it benefits the rest of our um, investing that we do as well. Okay, maybe let's dive into the things that you're doing these days. Um, by the way, for the benefit of the audience, we won't be speaking about performance numbers or anything, but I think it's fair of me to share that um, when I first met Anand, you were, I think, something around 100 million or maybe slightly below that, I don't remember, but you've scaled quite su you know, successfully, shall I say, to north of 1 billion in AUM um, at the present time, uh, which, which is just great. And I had a look at your returns um, obviously, people can find you 
uh, through your website, which we'll share in the show notes and, and contact you. But your returns are really amazing, I should say, and very differentiated and uncorrelated to what other systematic traders do. So framing it, you are a systematic commodities ARP trader. Uh, what you're doing is not based on fundamentals or, you know, discretionary analysis of one market versus another, but you're using your technology and your tech stack in order to find out arbitrage opportunities across a number of different commodity pairs and relationships that you have defined. And then you will essentially trade them, sometimes hold them for days or weeks, and sometimes, you know, scale up and down uh, positions and exposures, even on an intraday basis. I think is that is that a fair a fair intro before we start uh, getting into some of the details? Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, but but I would uh, also sort of add to that that uh, our entire thinking and philosophy is still driven around the fundamentals of these markets, how uh, different agents in these markets, whether it's the commodity merchants or the producers or the consumers, might be thinking about uh, holding or trading of these commodities. Um, and then we look to just apply a systematic, you know, decision-making process on how we go around betting on these fundamentals that we've looked to uh, model out um, and then trade it in this uh, best execution manner through these high-frequency trading systems. Sure. Yes, I, I remember, like you say, it's all around transportation costs and these type of things, which are near and dear to your heart. You were essentially brought up in a family that was focused on transportation costs and getting ships to run from, you know, one continent to another. So this, this reflects in, I guess, your systematic trading decisions today. Maybe let's take an example. We can start with something that let's just say is a, an easier example of a location arbitrage trade where you'd be say arbitraging the price of gold or gold futures in one location versus uh, the price in another location, um, say Comex Gold versus um, Shanghai Gold, right? That is something that you do. Uh, yes, uh, that 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 is uh, something that would fit uh, right within our wheelhouse. Right. So, shall we shall we run through this? Like, you know, how would how does how does such a trade come into existence? What are you looking at? What's important there? Uh, sure. So. You know, that, that's a fairly simplistic, uh, you know, trade and example over there. Um, if you really look at, uh, you know, the quality of gold that trades on on these different exchanges, first thing to think of is, okay, is the gold actually uh, fungible, right? Is it the same grade of gold, right? Is it 99.995 gold or 999 gold? Uh, and, and can that actually be picked up from one location and delivered to the other? Um, so if you're looking at, say, a, a COMEX gold or an LBMA gold and, and looking to sort of sell it into Shanghai, uh, questions that will come up is that, okay, what is the cost of transporting gold from one of these markets? Uh, if I have, say, a gold in, in a vault in, in London or, or in New York and I want to actually ship it to Shanghai, uh, what's that end-to-end -end cost going to look like? Uh, gold goes by F rate, uh, so, so you've got to you know, figure out the cost of actually moving it uh, over there. Um, you've got to price the gold in Shanghai in appropriate uh, currency-adjusted terms, right? Because the local gold there trades in RMB, um, you know, you have to price it appropriately um, in USD, uh, taking into account when you would actually be converting your USD to RMB um, or, or when you would receive RMB for delivering your gold uh, into China um, and and then see if given the pricing differentials that are trading across these two markets, if net of this end-to-end -end logistics cost, is there an excess spread available or not? Um, and basis that you can say, okay, if let's say Shanghai Gold is trading at a premium net of all of the end-to-end -end logistics cost, there is a genuine physical arbitrage that's possible that a gold importer in China could take advantage of uh, and is very likely going to take advantage of by actually going and physically doing that particular arm. And 
that's really what we're going to look to bet on, right? So we're going to go short uh, on Shanghai. We're going to go long uh, the global gold market, whether it's London or New York, uh, that we're pricing against and look at uh, what that pricing differential is, effectively betting that as the physical gold traders move the inventory from one of these markets uh, into Shanghai, that's going to you know, increase the supply in Shanghai. It's going to reduce the supply offshore. And that's going to get these markets back into an equilibrium, causing convergence of the spread uh, to eventually play out. Um, so the way we really think about this from a first principles philosophy is that what is the genuine physical arbitrage that a commodity merchant involved in this commodity would be able to take advantage of and um, that's really what we're going to bet on, right? And and we're only expressing our views uh, through the paper markets or the derivative markets. Uh, but the underlying thinking is, what is a physical player going to do given this particular scenario of relative pricing across these two markets? So you will take positions in the futures markets in this example. You wouldn't be seeing the trade to its end or see it through on the physical side, right? I mean, like in your example, the uh, Shanghai-based physical gold dealer may actually be taking advantage of the arbitrage opportunity here by engaging in a physical arbitrage trade, right? Actually ordering the gold from New York or London, having it shipped, paying for the freight, having it have it arrive in in in, in you know Shanghai where the business, the local business needs it. And then essentially they were able to source it for a cheaper price. But but you don't you don't go all through all of that trouble. You really you take the position in the futures markets and you wait for that spread to close and narrow and come back into equilibrium or fair, fair pricing. That that's correct. So we are not looking to actually hold the physical gold or actually ship the physical gold. Uh, you know, given our uh, physical business uh, or the commodity merchant business as part of the family of. You know, if we really wanted to do that, uh, we could probably get it done through that business. Uh, but that's not the intention through through our investment programs uh, to do any of that. We've never had to do that uh, in our history. Um, but as we are sort of relying on the commodity merchants to actually do that trade and get that market in equilibrium, we are very sensitive to events that might uh, disrupt that particular flow uh, or that trade flow of that commodity, right? So the ARB only works uh, or that spread only converges if one physical traders can actually physically move that material and, and you know, take advantage of that excess return. Um, and, there, and that there are enough of those physical players such that enough inventory can move over uh, to address the excess demand that is there, say, in the Shanghai market uh, in, in, in this example. Um, so we are very cognizant about um, specific events that might be taking place uh, that, that might lead to uh, some distortions in those trades. So when we go one level down with that trade, I mean, gold has a very stable forward or futures curve, right? It's essentially a funding trade. It doesn't have the, say, backwardation and contango dynamics or seasonal dynamics, which some other commodities, say the agricultural commodities have. But in order to get that, you know, in order for you to get interested in the trade, I mean, do you actually keep track every day or you know, periodically of what the cost of air freight, insured air freight of gold from London to Shanghai or from New York to London or from New York to Shanghai actually is and what the insurance premia are, is that kind of like, do you have your market intelligence and your feelers out to get updated prices on that? Because it sounds to me that without that information, you can't really know whether the trade is attractive or not. Correct. Uh, so with with gold, you know, there, there are two important aspects over here. So um, absolutely, we need to know and do actively track on a daily basis uh, what that uh, insurance premiums are, what the F rate is uh, for transporting the gold across each of these routes that we care about. Um, and we start trying to price what the cheapest to deliver path uh, for the gold is going to be. 
Um, and that's sort of what we're going to look to define as as our fair values. Um, but uh, as you said, right, because uh, gold trades uh, a lot more like a currency than, say, a pure commodity um, and, and very different from, say, an agricultural commodity, uh, the spread that we're looking to trade or, or, you know, the volatility of that spread is quite muted. Um, you know, you, you're not going to get uh, most of the time uh, extremely large deviations uh, that you can take advantage of, right? Um, you're, you're really going to play for some bips um, when, when you're looking to take advantage of uh, these spread movements uh, across that fair value. Um, so here is where sort of our high-frequency trading systems come into place. Because if you don't have a really good execution systems that can take advantage of a, a few BIPs deviations uh, in these spreads, uh, in something like gold for particular, it's not a market uh, that you can actually participate in for most of the time, right? Uh, at times in stressed environments, uh, that spread can widen out and widen out uh, meaningfully. Uh, where you can participate in that spread uh, without having high-frequency systems in place. But uh, let's call it 95% of the time, um, you would actually not be able to put any exposure on uh, because your sure slippage and market impact of just entering and exiting the positions uh, would eat up any expected return that you would have uh, from trading that particular spread or trading the deviations of that spread uh, from your arrived at uh, fair value. Um, so your ability to then get a really tight estimate on that fair value and then having the right execution systems that allows you to trade uh, you know, small deviations but frequent deviations from that fair value is what will allow us to actively participate in that trade uh, and put on meaningful risk where we're not just waiting for that uh, two or three sigma event to occur uh, before we can put risk on uh, on a trade like that. Right. Shows why your HFT setup is so important. And actually, about the Three Sigma event, I want to get to that in a second. There's something I have in the back of my head that I want to bring up. But before we go there, there's also, I guess, a component that with respect to the specific trade we're talking about, you need to take into account is the, if you're trading in Shanghai and you're trading in, say, on the COMEX or in London, you presumably don't have any margin netting benefit there, right? Because you're facing two different clearinghouses, uh, one in China, say the other one in, in New York. Um, I'm not sure what your PB setup type of is, but you probably deposit margin in these two different venues independently without any netting effect. And there is always with brokers, um, unless you self-clear, self I'm not sure what your setup is. There's always a funding spread that you pay on that margin, which you also have to take into account here, right? That's correct. So, you know, because we're trading across uh, different exchanges, um, we are funding margin on each side. Uh, so our typical margin to equity that we run tends to be a lot higher than, um, say, a lot of other CTAs or other spread traders uh, that, that might be there. Um, so you really got to pay attention to, you know, your cash management and ensure you have sufficient liquidity uh, given that you are running a higher margin to equity. Uh, we do work very closely with our clearers to you know, minimize the impact of funding costs uh, on the margins that, that we are placing. And uh, particularly now as, as rates have risen, um, the team spent a lot of effort uh, ensuring that uh, we can get not entirely up to risk-free on, on all cash that's sitting with us uh, or on the entire equity but very reasonable spread uh, to cash to risk-free on uh, the entire equity that's sitting with us. So the net, say, funding cost as such is, is not as uh, intense. Um, but you do also have to think about the funding cost that the physical trader is going to incur, right? So now the physical trader uh, is moving that gold physically from, say, New York or London Earlier when rates were zero, they could move it um, with uh, a lot smaller margin because their funding costs were so low. But as that funding cost rises, they, they also have to think about uh, the margin that they are baking into their trade 
um, and that has to reflect uh, in our models as well. So in the back of my head, because you mentioned that five sigma or whatever sigma event, during COVID times, and earlier you said, you know, your trade kind of also depends on whether the physical world is actually able to move the commodity from A to B and affect the arbitrage. But during COVID, you know, some ships stopped sailing, right? And, and, and the flows kind of didn't work anymore, which is, and I don't remember the specifics, but there was this moment in time where people were very focused on arbitraging or, you know, possibly arbitraging gold between London and New York. Remember what I'm talking about? Apparently that was a big disconnect in prices and you could ship it from or fly it from uh, London to New York. I think this was the direction, if I'm not mistaken, but you couldn't really get it done because you couldn't move it or it was difficult to move. Was, was that the trade? Exactly. Exactly. Um, so during, uh, COVID, when COVID hit, um, you know, all the planes were grounded, right? Uh, if, if you recall, uh, you know, countries didn't want people coming in from other countries in the world. Uh, so all the planes were grounded. Uh, most gold in the world actually gets shipped on uh, normal sort of passenger airplanes in the cargo holds of uh, passenger airplanes. Uh, it's, it's not that it's going in some dedicated air freight. It doesn't go by ship because it's too expensive it takes too long. Uh, gold being high value product, it, it really just flies in a normal sort of passenger planes. And as that uh, gold sort of, or, or as, as those planes sort of went offline, uh, you got to a point where you actually couldn't close the arb, right? So as New York started moving into a premium, uh, you couldn't get gold from London uh, to New York. Um, and close the ARB. And, and you know, given the uh, spec differences between those two goals, the actual ARB is that it, it actually goes from London to a Swiss refiner uh, who, who then, you know, shapes it into a form that's acceptable on the COMEX. And then it gets shipped out uh, or, or flown to New York uh, for delivery. Uh, but as those planes were not uh, flying, the ARB sort of broke down. Uh, and, and that led to, you know, a large dislocation in that particular spread at that point and really widened out. Um, we did not get caught up in that, uh, fortunately, because, um, you know, again, because we take this truly fundamental view as to what's driving these markets, um, we were able to say, okay, that, look, uh, planes are no longer flying. Uh, this arm no longer makes sense because you can't physically close the arb. Um, so we were able to, from a risk perspective, override our models to say, okay, do not participate in this arb right now. So we got saved when that particular arb sort of extended out. Um, and only when we started seeing, you know, uh, air traffic pick up again, did we uh, allow the models to turn back on and, and actually you know, start taking risk on, on these trades again, and we could benefit uh, as those spreads converged. So it is very critical to understand what is going on in the physical markets, because if you're taking a purely statistical approach to this and, you know, trying to trade some reversion to some rolling mean, um, you can have these sort of tail events, which are, you know, driven by the underlying sort of physical economics that make that trade no longer useful for a particular point in time. That's right. Um, you know, we see this over and over again. And, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I had another firm on and we were speaking about, you know, grain arbitrage trade between South Africa and, and the US and Europe. And uh, again, during COVID, these spreads completely disconnected. And by the way, they're also like you, they're looking at the markets, really figuring out what's going on. They're not just using a, say, Z-score or like a rolling deviation from the mean in order to figure out whether it, whether a trade makes sense or not. But still, you can easily get caught in these things and uh, this can be extremely painful. Maybe we, we leave gold aside for now. We use this as a relatively simple example. Before we maybe speak about one or two others, which which I thought uh, are really interesting. How many markets are you actually looking at? We just mentioned 
Shanghai Gold. So there's already a Chinese market there. I know that you're trading um, the majority, if not all, of the onshore Chinese Chinese futures markets. But maybe give us a background on like, you know, how many line items do you have in the portfolio? How many spread relationships um, do you consider and all that? Sure. So today in in the program, we trade uh, 25 unique relationships uh, in, in the program. Um, that sort of translates into around, you know, 40 to 45 line items uh, that, that we might be trading. Um, if I'm, tr- say, trading gold across, you know, four different markets, uh, that's one relationship for us. Um, we run a fairly diversified program uh, across the different commodity sectors. So it, it's pretty much across precious metals, base metals, agricultural commodities, as well as energy. Um, so we do want to run a diversified exposure to these sort of relationships um, that, that we want to be betting on. So part of you know what we try and do from an operations perspective is actually try and get market access uh, to as many markets uh, that that we can get where we have liquid commodity markets trading. Uh, so recently, you know, we went live on trading on our QFI license in China, uh, so we can now access China onshore futures as a qualified foreign investor um, and trade it like any other global futures market. Um, with its pretty complex operational setup, uh, time-consuming setup to get in place. But we think that that gives us uh, a meaningful edge um, in terms of just having, you know, maximum market access and allows us to diversify the program quite meaningfully. Got it. Um, You just mentioned copper. I presume, correct me if I'm wrong, that like a copper ARP trade between, say, Comix Copper and and, and LME Copper kind of like works in the same way that we've just... Uh, chatted about the gold trade, whereas like you're factoring in transportation costs, maybe copper now actually sails on the ship and doesn't fly through the air. But uh, is it fair to say that it would kind of like be the same rationale behind it or the same driver that you're using uh, for the gold trade? Right. So as as you move on to something like copper, um, that that's where these trades actually get a lot more interesting, right? Because complexity actually goes up more exponentially. As uh, so when you're looking at copper, you can look at Shanghai copper, LME copper, COMEX copper, and 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 we can trade a combination of all of these uh, against each other. Um, now, when you're thinking about the transportation costs, uh, you're really looking at uh, every possible warehouse to every possible other warehouse in in an opposite market. Um, you know, so the LME, for example, has global warehouses. Um, not only in London, right? It's got warehouses in Rotterdam, in Malaysia, Singapore, in the US. China has its warehouses in Shanghai for Shanghai Copper. Um, so now when you're actually looking at these transportation costs, it's no longer you know one or two locations uh, that you're trying to price or one or two routes that you're trying to price. Um, you actually have to price this from every single possible warehouse, uh, say, of the LME, uh, to the other market that you're looking at, right? So whether it's any possible COMEX warehouse, which again has multiple warehouses across the U.S., um, or to say Shanghai set of warehouses uh, for Shanghai copper. Yeah. So how do you get about, you know, obtaining these transportation costs? Is there like a, a specialized broker market out there that you can kind of like phone up and say, hey, what would it cost me uh, to deliver from? you know, one of the LME warehouses, say the Malaysia warehouse uh, of the LME to to Shanghai? Is, is there actually, can you just call somebody or email somebody and they come back with, okay, this is what it costs today and on? So, so that data is actually really hard uh, to come by. Uh, you can't really go out and say subscribe to that level of granular data out there. You know, the data providers on shipping data, for example, or shipping cost data, um, give you very coarse data, right? You can get it from one continent to the other, uh, but if I want from specific warehouse to another, or I want inland trucking costs, uh, you you really can't go around getting that data uh, by simply subscribing to it. Um, for this data on our end, we lean very heavily um, on our commodity merchant business uh, that that we have, uh, which is the family business. 
Uh, you know, that business, uh, due to its size and scale, has you know, contracts with all the major shipping lines, uh, the truckers, warehouses, insurance providers. So we can actually get from them every day for every single route uh, that we are interested in, uh, the cost end to end of what it takes to move a commodity uh, from one of those warehouses to another warehouse uh, that, that we are interested in. Uh, so that becomes uh, this really key proprietary data set for us uh, that we can use to define our fair values, um, have a really tight estimate uh, on what that, at beyond what level physical ARB uh, traders will actually kick in um, and use that to then trade systematically any deviations from that fair value. All right. So that is a huge edge, right? You have that kind of like underpinning that background, that connection to the to the physical world. Then you combine that with your with the alphas that you have, which you know are 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 good as well. On top of that, you have the HFT setup, which allows you to very efficiently get into these arbitrage trades, even for a few basis points where other market participants essentially need to stay on the sidelines because they don't have that that trading efficiency that you can bring to the table here. Exactly. And, and it is about, you know, the integration across uh, each of these areas when put together, um, we, we think, you know, you, you sort of get the best result when it comes to trying to trade uh, these particular markets or these particular spread opportunities. Uh, because we have a tight estimate around that fair value, uh, you can then think of trading small deviations from that fair value, right? Because if you're fair value itself had a very large error term, uh, automatically you would have to wait for a large deviation from that uh, before you can even think about participating uh, because you're just not sure uh, as to what that end-to-end -end transportation cost might look like. So now because we have a tight estimate of fair value and then we have the high frequency systems in place, we can configure our portfolio construction to say, okay, um, I can look to rebalance, you know, on a real-time, tick-by-tick basis if there is sufficient movement in the spread um, where my view changes even by a few percentage points uh, to go in and trade um, a marginal change in my exposure where I can either size up or size down my exposure to that spread uh, because we can have certainty that yes, um, this fair value is 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 highly accurate. It's it's actually executable, and now I know that I have HFT systems in place uh, that is going to limit the amount of market impact and slippage that I'm going to face when I go in and trade uh, into these spread markets. Uh, you know, the number of legs that you are looking to trade at one go in one shot, uh, you know, could be. Um, you know, anywhere from two to five legs, uh, depending on the complexity of the trade uh, and the spread that you're looking to capture. So the amount of slippage and market impact that you'll face uh, can be a very significant percentage of the PL that you then give up um, if you're trying to trade small deviations. Uh, so it's really the combination of it are all put together and that to trading a diversified set of these opportunities across all the major sectors um, is, is we think a really val a good value proposition. Great that you mentioned the, you know, the multiple legs that you may trade, um, during our prep call, you mentioned that, that those trades are actually the ones, I think you mentioned that you're, um, don't want to say favoring maybe is the wrong word, but they, they play a large role in your portfolio, essentially a, sometimes like a substitu substitution arbitrage trade, but that trade then includes a location arbitrage as well, right? So one example would be, for instance, New York Cocoa versus uh, versus London Cocoa, or even more complex, you could go, okay, we're trading um, New York heating oil, arbitraging that against uh, London gas oil, and then, you know, some kind of like crack spread type of way, it goes into Tokyo crude. That is stuff that you do, right? So, so that that is all things that we are happy to do. Um, Again, the underlying principles uh, that we're looking to bet on is that, is there a strong fundamental economic rationale as to why these spreads, if they widen out, uh, should converge back to some sense of what that fair values look like, right? So even when we're saying we're happy to trade 
substitution um, arbitrage over here where we're okay with slightly different grades. Uh, so like London Cocoa versus New York Cocoa. Um, we like those opportunities more so when there is a geographic transportation cost element into it uh, because we think we can bring some edge to the table when we're trading that. And then more importantly, you know, what we're looking at saying is that, okay, are these genuine substitutes for one another, right? So can a consumer who's consuming one grade um, quickly uh, switch to consuming another grade uh, if uh, the primary grade that they're consuming gets too expensive? You know, so for example, something that we would not look to trade um, would be a Brent versus WTI. So even though they are highly correlated uh, sort of grades of crude, um, it's it's really hard for a refinery to suddenly start processing Brent uh, if they've been set up to process WTI, right? So so that spread between uh, TI and Brent uh, can keep widening and narrowing, uh, but it's not necessarily going to trigger um, a genuine sort of substitution effect uh, in the physical markets uh, because the cost of you know reconfiguring the refiner refinery to process the other grade is is too expensive. Um, so we would stay away from those kind of trades um, and and really sort of focus on only those set of relationships uh, that are going to be very tightly configured. And then similarly on you know cracks and crush spreads, is there actual economic flow that's going in from that one market into the others uh, where you're going in from you know your input commodities to those output commodities? Or are those markets genuinely just distinct from each other and having their own sort of supply demand dynamics with no way of actually bridging uh, the flows between them? Because if you don't have true trade flows uh, bridging these markets, then these spreads can actually dislocate and remain dislocated. Um, so really diving into the fundamentals of these markets as a starting point to understand where the consumers are, where the producers are, and um, what are the linkages that you have between these markets is really critical before we even say, here's a relationship uh, you know, that's part of the universe uh, that we're even good to go and research uh, any further. One market that I'd like to bring up another that's just um, coming to mind as we speak is is nat gas because you know you have a molecule of natural gas used to be fairly constrained around where that gas is produced and then delivered to Henry Hub TTF, but now that market has changed. Right, LNG is growing. A gas molecule can now, I don't want to say relatively easily, but it it definitely can travel on ship on a specialized, you know, LNG tanker uh, from one location to another and essentially find a home where the price is highest, right? The, 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 there's a global market for, for LNG. Um, have you become more active in, in this market given that it has in a way structurally changed to become more global? Or is it still a market that you're staying away from kind of like calling them like you would with WTI and brands, like, well, they're really distinct. You know, Henry Hub is one thing and TTF is really another, and we're not looking at at, at any relationship there. Right. So, so you know, we, we won't comment on, um, you know, our specific involvement in, in any of these particular gas markets. Uh, but I think uh, to your larger point, um, I totally agree that these markets uh, which historically have been actually quite distinct markets, uh, are now actually getting integrated as global markets. Um, because um, as um, LNG capacity uh, ramps up, both in terms of um, you know liquefying and regasifying on both ends, um, as LNG shipping capacity ramps up, um, you are effectively moving to a world where you are going to have sort of a large single gas market um, where gas is going to go effectively to the highest bidder, barring any, you know, import-export restrictions that, uh, you know, countries might choose to impose. Um, so uh, that becomes a market over time that historically um, we would stay away from. And, and more and more um, as these capacities come online, 
they become integrated and a true sort of location orb uh, kicks in over there. Um, we're not all the way there, uh, so we are sort of on that spectrum right now. How we specifically get involved today in that market um, is, is something um, you know, I, I would not be able to comment on, but uh, I think this is an important aspect that uh, you know, players in these markets uh, are pretty much aware of now and, and will be a significant driver for how gas is traded uh, going forward. Uh, you know, that's no longer, say, a local Henry Hub market with, you know, various basis trades uh, all locally and geographically only in the U.S. How export capacity is and how exports are going out uh, is going to be as key a driver to pricing even for Henry Hub than any of the other markets. Moving away from specific trade examples and markets, um, when you put it all together in a portfolio context, how do you th think about that? You know, is there kind of like a rule that says, okay, I need to have at least a certain number of spreads on any given point in time in order to have a certain level of diversification or would you be able to also run a very concentrated book because say the only thing that happens is actually in the gold market and you know all the other markets aren't interested. Uh, interesting or nothing is really moving enough for you to get interested in it. How do you go about putting all of these, I think you mentioned 25 uh, unique relationships that you're monitoring. How, how are you going about putting all of that together? Sure. So when we think of uh, each of these uh, spread relationships uh, that, that the system's trading, the way we like to run it is, is let each uh, relationship sort of run completely independent uh, of the other. And if, say, there are a host of spreads that are not on, um, we're not going to take the risk that's allocated to them and, and load them up on spreads where, um, which are on at that or have attractive opportunities uh, at that point. The nature of this game is that you're anyways taking time-varying risk on individual spreads in the portfolio. If you are going to you know, actively reallocate risk uh, and load up on other interesting opportunities just because something's not on, you're sort of going to be doubling down uh, on that risk timing that you're anyways doing on these spreads. Uh, so we like to run them independently. Um, we like to you know, size the overall exposures or the max risks that spreads can go up to such that an individual spread uh, can give us a certain level of uh, volatility contribution to the portfolio over time. And we will go in sort of statically allocate how much risk we want then over the long term from individual spreads, taking into account uh, what the covariance across the spreads are, taking into account you know the tail risks that uh, similar spreads might be exposed to, whether it's you know sector risk or producer country risk or consumer country risk, uh, where you want to diversify those risks uh, as much as possible. But then once we do that static risk allocation, we don't go and look to sort of uh, shift risk from one to the other. Uh, just because a particular opportunity is looking attractive. Uh, so we do try and target a constant volatility on the portfolio over time, but because we're taking time-varying risk, what it sort of means is that at any point in time, we might be running well below our uh, target level of risk or our constant vol target, uh, and at other times, we'll be running higher than that vol target. Uh, it is a function of how many opportunities are attractive and to what extent uh, at any point in time. Um, but that said, uh, again, because we trade in this sort of continuum um, where we are putting you know, small amounts of exposures on, even as uh, spreads deviate uh, uh, minimally, uh, it sort of means that we tend to have a lot of positions on, on average. Right? So it's, it's not going to be the case that portfolio is going to only hold, you know, tools relationships uh, out of the 25 at a point in time. Um, we'll typically have some positions on in around 13 or 14 of these uh, at any point in time. Uh, the size of those positions could obviously vary uh, depending on the attractiveness of the opportunity. Right. Do you have maybe a final question on that, on, on risk management? Is there like a, a point also where 
there's like a stop loss or you'd say this is enough the spread has moved uh too much against us it has widened even more to a point where you say like okay we're, we're calling it quits we're leaving it or would you really if you have determined an arbitrage opportunity that you think you know will play out you would then essentially stick to that trade and uh see it through to its end right so you know when we've spoken of the arbitrage opportunities for starters right we've spoken primarily of the deviation from uh the fair value or the transportation cost uh the models that we run are actually multi-factor models uh, where we say that look this physical arb is the primary call it value factor uh, but then we do want to explicitly and quantitatively account for you know supply demand relative inventory levels market sentiment factors uh that can help sort of determine uh, how quickly uh, this arb might come back or whether it's going to be stretched for longer periods of time uh but let's say even in this multi-factor approach uh if you get to a point where the spreads are continuing to expand against you um we do run automated drawdown controls where after a point we gradually start taking risk down and at further sort of predefined points uh, we would automatically be 100% out of the spread uh we think it's a really important to build in this automated sort of drawdown controls uh, when you're trading these spreads uh because like everything in finance is fat tailed um and and negatively skewed spread trading in particular in any form um that you construct it uh is going to be even more negatively skewed so you got to build for uh negative tail events um that are going to happen uh every now and again um you know it could have been because there's a policy change by a government uh, suddenly duties or taxes have been changed imports or exports have been restricted from a certain country that's an important player uh for that particular commodity and you can get tail events in these spreads as a result of that so it's really important that you are in a position to very quickly and automatically uh, reduce the losses that you face in those sort of event scenarios and hopefully because you're running a diversified program over here the impact on that of that event is fairly muted uh, on the portfolio as a whole speaking about the skew and you know maybe uh, in, in preparation of closing this conversation down which by the way I think is is, is absolutely fantastic but on spreads i mean there's more of a tail risk you know like you said something happens uh, policy change import duties um you know weather risk materializing covid all these type of things but it, i mean is it fair to say that it's it's really negatively skewed i mean it it, it does have the tail exposure in both ends right it it simply is i would say more tail exposed a more leptocurtic distribution whether the tail is is negative or positive remains to be seen it can go go both ways or would you say it's really you know a negative a negatively tailed exposure that you have there it is going to be sort of negatively tailed because uh you know principally you're still trading reversion over here right so um if you are sort of crossing fair value you're anyways uh you know exiting out of your positions right so um highly unlikely unless there is a huge gap event uh in in your favor um highly unlikely you will benefit from a, a tail move uh, on the apps absolutely no you 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 absolutely right you are more the mean reverting fair value reversion type of trader whereas you know some other spread traders they may actually look to say you know trade momentum in these spreads and they may have a different tail experience than what you're describing but you're absolutely correct i mean kind of like with any mean reversion strategy right you're uh you're getting in at a point where you think a a spread is stretched and um that in and by itself because you want to go back to the mean but if it does go back to the mean you really only have the tail on the other side that can sting you exactly exactly anand fantastic is there anything that you'd like to bring up anything that you think we should speak about but didn't no Thank you Maritz I think we you know covered all the key facets of of how we think about the world uh, you know I think it's uh, the key takeaway if there is one is that um, we really think about this world as physical commodity traders first and and how they might be reacting 
to these markets um, and then looked to systematically trade around it. And that's held us in really good stead uh, over the years as we think about uh, you know, taking this program further. Fantastic. So thank you a million for doing this. I know it's been a long time in the making. We wanted to get you on for a long time. We finally made it happen. And listeners, please make sure you follow Anand and Greenland. And as ever, should you have any questions, be that to me or to Anand, please email us at info at top trades on Black, where we'll pick it up and absolutely respond. So thank you big time for listening. It was really great. We'll soon be back with another episode of Open Interest. So please stay tuned. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.